Welcome to the Probate Realtor Show, your one source for selling and buying real estate through trust and probate. Hear directly from the best attorneys and trusted advisors on how executors and administrators navigate the probate process in and out of court. Being a personal representative or successor trustee can be a daunting task, and often beneficiaries don't have a clear plan. Let us help you make the right decision for your clients, your family, and your legacy. And now, here's your host, the probate realtor himself, Matthias Baker Mazzucci. Welcome, everybody, to the show. Thank you for joining us today. We are talking to Kim Melman, who is an estate planning attorney who focuses on estate planning, trust administration, charitable planning and giving, as well as business succession planning. Kim, thank you so much for joining the show. Thank you for having me. So one of the things that I've noticed is that there's a lot of estate planning attorneys who just do the trust and then forget about it. But you talk about trust administration, which is you don't, you don't leave people in the dark. Can you tell us what is trust administration? That's a great question because there's a lot of misconceptions about this. People who do estate planning, whether they do it with an attorney or they do some sort of online type thing, they think that if you do a trust, when someone passes away, you don't have to do anything. But the way I like to explain it is trusts are not magic. They don't right. do anything. They are documents that tell people what to do. The person that they're telling what to do is the successor trustee. Right. So if the document says that the assets get split between a decedent's trust and a survivor's trust, which is what usually happens when the first member of a couple dies, it doesn't automatically happen. Somebody has to do it. If there's a tax return that needs to be filed or an estate right. tax return that needs to be filed, assets need to be valued. The documents need to be read. The, the successor trustee needs to actually be appointed just because the document says, you know, I nominate Joe to be my successor trustee. It's not automatic. So there is this huge misconception that you don't need to do something when someone passes away. Yeah. And that's not true. And I've had people come to me as recently as somebody passed away a couple of hours ago to as long as 20 years ago right. to do a trust administration that needs to be done. When I do an estate plan with somebody, I tell them, this is just step one. When someone passes away, you got to get to step two. But I have discovered that not either, not all attorneys tell the clients that, or they don't hear that. But yeah. it is it is a critical thing to do. And the most important thing to understand about trust administration is there are rules and guidelines, both from the state of California and the federal government, that have timelines associated with them. You need to do things with their, within certain time periods. And if you have a happy family and nobody's fighting with each other, then I suppose if you miss your deadline, it's not a big deal. But if you have beneficiaries that don't get along or trustees and beneficiaries that don't get along it can turn ugly. So trust administration yeah. is a critical thing that a lot of people miss. And there's a lot of really screwy stories that come out of that. Absolutely. And, and you know, if you spend any time in probate court, you'll, you'll know what I mean. Some, some, some of these days are like a Jerry Springer episode when I go to for <laughs> confirmations of sales. Seriously, like I have heard people say, dad didn't love you as much as they loved me, blah, blah, and things like that. So, so obviously there is a need for, for this trust administration, which is somehow forgotten. And people, you're absolutely right, Kim. I mean, you're absolutely right. People do a trust and they think, I have a trust. What do I have to worry about? And I've seen, I've seen when it comes to the side of, of selling that, you know, an affidavit of death is not being filed. So, you know, the, the title is still in the, people have passed 20 years, maybe it's past time. You know, one of the spouses has passed and like 
So how do you help your clients stay on top of, of these milestones that, that happen during, during the lifetime of an individual and, and beyond? So there's two parts to that. So on the trust planning side, as I mentioned, I tell the, mm -hmm. the people in advance. And the very the first page of my documents in bold print, it says, this is a document that tells people what to do. If something happens, somebody dies, somebody becomes incapacitated, you must reach out to me or another attorney and start the process of what needs to be done. Right. I tell them this and I write in the documents. Now, the reality is the person I'm telling that to may in fact be the person who passes away. Right. So I'm optimistic that the successor trustee or family member will, will see that and, and pay attention to it. I also tell my clients, do not lock up their trust documents. Don't put them in a safe deposit box. Don't put them oh, in a very home good safe. advice. Because if someone dies and nobody knows where the documents are, they're as good as not existing. So yeah. that's one way I try to take care of it. On the, the situations where I'm doing a trust administration where I didn't draft the plan and that somebody has come to me after someone's passed away and I'm looking at some other attorney's documents, mm -hmm. I'm very detail-oriented and very methodical in the way I do things. So I'm I'm constantly on communication with my with the trustees and making sure they understand why they have to do what they have to do and what the steps are and what's required. And I don't really let anything just sort of happen by chance, you know, mm. much as I can possibly prevent that, because unfortunately the trustee has ultimate responsibility and liability. Right. So it's, as I describe it to, to the clients, it's my job to make sure that you do it right. So that's the goal. The other thing I think it's a really big deal that you have to have, an, the beneficiaries need to have an understanding of what really is involved because right. an average trust administration takes between nine and 18 months, okay. assuming nothing weird, assuming the assets are, are understandable and mm -hmm. you, can, you can either keep them or sell them or value them and get them all valued, all those things. Between the statutory timelines and just putting all the pieces together, nine to 18 months is pretty standard. Mm -hmm. Beneficiaries don't understand that. They, they, as I like to describe it, you know, grandma died, where's my stuff? Right. Um, and, and unfortunately, that puts pressure on the trustee yeah. to try to have to, you know, field those inquiries from the beneficiaries. And to the extent that I can talk to the beneficiaries, because I don't represent them, I can only give them. You know, general information mm -hmm. is, you know, these things take time. If you have questions and I can answer them, I'm happy to answer them. If you have questions that I can't answer, you may want to get your own attorney to give you an example or explanation rather of how the process works. Right. But the, again, there are, there are steps that need to be taken and notifications that need to be given. And each one of those carries a, a timeline that goes with it to give people an opportunity to, to be heard or object. And yes. you just kind of work your way through the process. And depending on what the asset mix is, it can be a complicated process. The right. other thing I probably want to throw into this is on the planning side, I do everything I can. I'm not always successful at this, but I try to get my clients to simplify and consolidate what they have mm -hmm. because nothing makes beneficiaries more upset than when they have to deal with lots and lots of things in teeny tiny amounts that they can't figure out. I had one client who, unfortunately, I, I did an emergency plan for her because she was on hospice. She was mm -hmm. perfectly fine mentally. She's a wonderful woman, very, very bright. 
but we didn't have a lot of time to examine everything. And she swore to me, it was a, re, it was a, a redo of an existing trust. So the, mm-hmm. at, the trust already existed by name. So we did a restatement and she swore to me that everything was already in the trust. And I said, great, I take your word for it. She passed away a couple of months later. Her husband comes back to me. He thinks everything good to go. We had just redone everything. Well, it turns out she had like 27 bank accounts. No. Which I did not know about. And I'm go- and he's like complaining that what do we have to do with all this? Well, I'm, I'm really sorry. I had no idea. They were all in the trust, which was good, but still consolidating and dealing and, and valuing course. and closing 27. It's a lot. So, yeah. so to the extent that people can get rid of all these little tiny accounts all over the place and try to consolidate as much as possible, it makes it easier for them, especially as they age. And mm. it makes it a lot easier for the trust administration process. That because, makes total sense. Because all those all those random little assets take, I mean, it takes just as much time to deal with and close out a big account than a small account. Yeah. So for anybody who is watching this, if you have a trust, talk to your successor trustee. Don't make it a secret. Hide the trust somewhere. And then hopefully some days, not all successor trustees may know that they are successor trustees. I mean, I've seen things like that as well. So um, in your case, Kim, do you are, are you nominated as a successor trustee when you do uh, the trust administration? So the drafting attorney is not really allowed to be the trustee and I would mm-hmm. not want to be the trustee. Okay. The trustee, there's a couple of different ways that trustees, that make good trustees. There's a lot of people like to have friends and family become right. successor trustees. I am not a big fan of that because being a trustee is a really hard, difficult, very high liability job. And if you don't know what you're doing, the chances of doing it wrong is really high. And if right. you do it wrong and the beneficiary is unhappy, you could be personally sued. So people have this idea that, well, I'm going to make my, you know, my oldest child the successor trustee because it's an honor or they'll be insulted or all of right, these other right. reasons. And the real answer is that's not the reality. When somebody, I tell people, if somebody asks you to be a trustee, you say no, because <laughs> it's really a lot of work and people That's have That's why no we have idea. professional fiduciaries, right? Exactly. <laughs> so the options are either a, a private professional fiduciary, which sometimes works, sometimes it doesn't. If, if the person creating the trust is too young, then mm-hmm. you don't want to use a private professional fiduciary because you don't know how long it'll be before. Right. But there's, there's large banks, there's small banks, there's mm-hmm. institutional trustees. So those all work. You can have a trustee. I mean, I oftentimes have family members as or friends as trustees, but there are people who are likely to be successful in the job. Mm-hmm. There are CPA, you know, friends that are lawyers or right. friends that are CPAs or friends that are something to do with they understand what's required. To be a trustee, you have to be good with money, understand legal documents, understand financial statements, right. and take the instructions that you're given. From, whether it's from the CPA or from the attorney, because these things have to be done. Right. And, and there is a huge, huge misconception. And somebody who doesn't have that skill set, it's just a recipe for failure. And then, of course, everybody's unhappy. Yeah. So, Kim, if somebody has, if you do the estate planning and somebody says, look, I, I don't want to have my kids to be the trustee and I don't really know anybody, you're also able to recommend, as you mentioned, uh, institutions or individuals that, that can uh, do the job professionally and efficiently. Correct. Yeah, I know I know several uh, in all different categories. Like I said, if the client already has a relationship with some kind of institution, mm-hmm. my first choice is almost always going to be where they already have that relationship. If right. that, if their bank 
or investment advisor has is connected to a, they have a trust department, that's the easiest because then you know the assets are not going to have to be moved all over the place. Right. Not all institutions have that. Not all people have a relationship that's already existing. So in those cases, then we go looking for who else is a good fit. And like I said, I like private professional fiduciaries because they're they're more hands-on than maybe the big institutions. But unless you have a situation where you know you know what the timeline is, it's more likely that an institution is a better choice. That and then the other, the other thing that comes into play when you start looking at who could be the trustee is you have to look at what the assets are. Mm-hmm. Because if the person has just, say, you know, investment accounts, stocks and bonds type things, then the large banks and stuff will take them. If they have a more eclectic mix, they have real estate, they have apartment buildings, they have a you know, sole proprietor business, large institutions won't take them. Right. So that's that's when you get the best choice for people like that is something like a community bank that's far more flexible with what they'll take on. Because mm-hmm. remember, when the person's gone, the trustee gets to pick up all of those, those right. assets under their control. And, and there's liability with picking up those assets as we see it, especially like in the example of, like you said, when you, when you, um, you know, when apartment buildings are an example of, of things where, you know, you become a landlord essentially. Right. And not everybody wants to take that, that kind of responsibility on. Right. So, exactly. Yeah. So, um, and, the, and, and I've actually, I've, I've come across some institutional trustees that they have, and I can't, I, when this happens, I can't work with them because they're willing to be the successor trustee, but they will only become successor trustee over their assets under management. And I go, mm. well, what are we going to do with the house? Right. Well, then you have to have a different trustee. I'm going, well, what do I need that for? I mean, <laughs> that, yes, that's just not functional. You, you can't be so, you can't be so tiny there. Yeah. It's just not going to work. Yeah, that makes total sense. Very good. This has been, it's extremely informative and I appreciate you sharing your knowledge with us. I wanted to touch upon something else that you do as well, which is charitable planning. A lot of a lot of our listeners, I think, would be very interested in that. What is the, how do you approach, you know, when somebody comes to you and they say, Kim, you know, I have certain assets that, you know, I want to go to charity. Or sometimes I've actually had sold properties where everything goes to charity. I just sold the St. Jude something for where the trustee was, St. Jude's Children's Hospital. So how do you help somebody who has a philanthropic So, uh, so that's, a, that's, that's a very interesting thing. So charitable planning really has two functions. The number one function is to fulfill the goals of somebody who really is philanthropically inclined. Right. That's not always the case. There are some people who Actually, there are far less people who are philanthropically inclined than those that are. Okay. So when if somebody is truly that they want to do part of their estate planning as a charitable component, there are several ways to do that. You can do it as an outright gift, or you can do it at some kind of more complicated trust plan, which I'll explain in a minute. The other thing is there are people who are tax are likely to pay estate taxes. And one way to reduce estate taxes is through charitable planning. Mm-hmm. On the surface, you would think, well, if somebody doesn't want to pay estate taxes and they're willing to pay it to a charity, they're they're more likely to do that. But even that doesn't always work. So ultimately, even in a situation where you're mostly doing it for estate planning purposes, I mean, for estate tax purposes, Mm -hmm. they still need to have a philanthropic component in, in, in their mindset. So in terms of how you can actually do it, well, when you give it a a distribution plan as part of an estate plan, there's Mm -hmm. two parts to it. There's what are called specific gifts, and then there's what's called the residuary. Okay. The specific gifts are the thing, I want to give this thing to this person, 
Yes. The residuary says, I want to give everything else to my kids or my, or my right, right. whatever. If you wanted to give specific gift to a charity, let's say I want to give, you know, $10,000 to each of these three or four things, sure. you could put that in your trust as a specific gift. The thing to understand about specific gifts is they come off the top. They're the first things paid. So if you have an estate worth a half a million dollars and you give mm-hmm. $600,000 in specific gifts, A, you're not going to make all your specific gifts and whoever's on the back end doesn't get anything. We'll get so you got to check your math on how that's going to mm-hmm. work. And again, you do it, you do the plan for something in the future. So you want to be careful with how you do specific gifts. Right. And so that, that is one way to do charity. And that's very common. And it, that's usually done for smaller amounts to specific things. And you can you can set that up to be done after the first spouse dies or after both spouses die. So that's the easiest one to do. Mm-hmm. Another thing you can do is you can set it up so that at the death of the, whether the first or the second person, some percentage of the estate goes to a charitable portion of the trust. It could be right. all of it, or it could be you know, half to charity, half to my kids. You can do as many charities as you want, and you could just say they, you know, they half of the estate goes to this many charities. And at the end of the calculations of what everything's worth, you figure out how much goes to each place. In general, it's easier to give charities fixed dollar amounts than percentages mm-hmm. because it takes a lot longer to figure out percentages. And there can be a dispute as to what something's valued at. Right. So, most of the time when we're doing that kind of planning, I'll say, okay, let's pick a dollar amount. We're going to give, I don't know, half a million dollars to charities and the rest to wherever it's going to go to. And we'll just do it that way. So that's one way of doing charitable planning. Then the third way, which is probably the most complicated, is to do what's called some kind of charitable trust. When there is either a charitable lead trust or a charitable remainder trust, the difference is who and when the money goes out. Mm-hmm. But essentially the way that works is you put X amount of dollars into it, into a special kind of trust. The charity gets paid some amount of money for so many years, and then what's left over goes back to the beneficiaries, or the reverse of that. The beneficiaries mm-hmm. get paid for some amount of years, and then with, at the end goes to the, goes to the charity. The advantage to those to that type of planning is it creates an in, a, a delayed distribution scheme for mm-hmm. the other for who's ever on the other half of that equation. And there are rules on how you can do that and how much has to be paid out and what what the interest rate can be so those become more complicated and more and more difficult to figure out but if somebody's trying to you know play it in all directions have have some amount go to charity have some amount go to their kids have some amount come you know 20 years down the line that's part of what you can do and Wonderful. again all of those options work great for estate tax planning or just for charitable planning in general there's another type of charitable planning that has to do with people when they're alive, you know, they wouldn't give it away now. That's become that's becomes an income income tax type of, of deduction. Mm-hmm. I don't generally do those. I really more focus on testamentary planning and what happens with people after they pass away. Thank you. This is very informative. Very, very good. Um, now let's talk a little bit about you. Uh, okay. Okay, so law is your second career. I have a huge admiration, you know, forgive me. I have a huge admiration for, for adults who go to law school. I don't know why, but you know, maybe maybe that's where my future is headed, but I can tell you that. But how did it start? Like let's talk, let's talk. What you what did you do before before you so, became so so my family started a business when I was a child. Okay. Um, and uh, the business was in the fashion industry. And 
my father was a child of an entrepreneurial family. And my father really believed that everything, you know, entrepreneurs are, are the best type of, of business owners at getting and, and doing that. So uh, I have one sister. And basically from the time we were children, we were raised to be business owners. Wow. And the business that we had, like I mentioned, was in the fashion industry. And my mother was the fashion side of it. And my father was the business side of it. And my sister was trained to be my mother's replacement. And I was trained to be my father's replacement. Wow. So I really was doing, I, I am not kidding. I started working when I was 10. Wow. Um, and um, so we, I worked full-time in junior high, full-time in high school, full-time in college. My, my life was pretty much controlled by the family business. And um, the family, it, we had multiple versions of it over the years, depending on what was happening with the economy. Uh-huh. But um, we were, we were originally, we were something called the jobber, which is basically doesn't exist anymore, but jobbers bought product from manufacturers, broke them into small lots and sold them to individual stores. Okay. Over the years, the individual stores all went away. So those didn't exist anymore. So then mm-hmm. we became um, domestic manufacturers and we made stuff for the stores and it was all private label. So if we made it for Nordstrom's, it said Nordstrom's. If we made it right. for Macy's, it said Macy's. Um, eventually that became unfunctional or non-functional because domestic manufacturing was too expensive. So then we became importers. We had everything made overseas. And throughout that entire time, we were selling two retail stores. Also during that time period where things were sort of changing and evolving, my father unfortunately passed away very young, very suddenly. He was 45, I was 23. And I was all of a sudden the running the business side of the business. Oh, wow. Um, that was actually my first experience with this, what happened when you don't have an estate plan. Because mm. my father died, like I said, very suddenly, very young. So he yeah. didn't have one. As a matter of fact, on his desk was a little post-it. Well, they didn't have post-it notes back then, but a little paper that said, make a will, which of course <sighs> didn't, didn't happen. Over the years, as we sort of morphed with the times for the economy, and eventually what we ended up doing was we started a mail order catalog. And we did that in order, we had a company that we were selling to that was a mail-order catalog, and we decided that we can go into competition with them. Mm-hmm. So we, since we were private label, we just took all the product that we had been manufacturing for other stores. We hired a graphic artist. We designed a brand, which was called Girlfriends LA. We ran a full page ad in 17 magazine that said you could either buy the product or you could request a catalog. Wow. The day the ad hit, we got 6,000 phone calls. Wow which we had at the time we had seven lines and seven employees. So 6,000 phone calls, complete disaster. I mean, a complete disaster. So we ramped up really quickly. We ended up running Girlfriends LA for just about six years. At the time we, we ended up selling it to a conglomerate that ended up closing it down, but they did, they did run it for a short period of time after they bought it from us. At the time we sold it, we had 250 employees, we were, we were producing 30 million catalogs a year. Wow. And we had a database of about eight and a half million teenage girls. Amazing. And what's really funny, and we sold it, you know, almost 20 years, well, more than 20 years ago, actually. It, it's 2002. And to this day, if you Google Girlfriends LA, there are fan sites to Girlfriends LA. All these That's years, awesome. like, it's, re- it's really, aw- it is awesome. It is really awesome. Um, and part of what I, what made Girlfriends LA special is Girlfriends LA had a mentality. We we were completely vertically integrated. We did everything. We designed mm-hmm. the fabric. We designed the clothing. We designed the catalog. Wow. We had an in-house call center, an in-house distribution center. 
we could you know, turn on a dime to respond to customer requests. And one of the things that we learned was that this was a long time ago and models were like read thin and clothing mm-hmm. came in small sizes only. So we started doing larger size models and larger size clothing. Oh. And so there were girls who said, you know, they were they were so excited with our product. So you were a pioneer in that space because now it's even for granted, but 20 years ago, it certainly wasn't. Correct. So (laughs) when we sold the company, I decided, you know, I had always been doing the business and finance and tax planning and and projection side of the business. So I had wanted to go to law school when I was younger, but I never did because I got sucked into the family business. So once I graduated, I mean, sorry, once we sold GFLA, I went to law school. Wow. Um, and while I was in law school, I determined that the best place for me to exist is in the estate planning and the state administration side of things. I had learned through enough very unfortunate litigation ex- experiences with girlfriends that I never wanted to be in a courtroom, <laughs> so, which is why my practice to this day does not have anything to do with the courtroom. Right. And part of running a company is, is tax planning and forecasting. And part of estate planning is tax planning and forecasting. Right. And because I was an entrepreneur for so long, I understand what it's like to run a business. And and to to a very small extent, being a trustee is like being in charge of a very small business that you're trying to, you know, get all the documentation put together, get all the tax return filed and get your product out, which is really, you know, the money to the beneficiaries. So it's a great fit for me. And I and I have to say, I really love what I do. I love working with my clients. I love helping families. It's a lot easier to be a lawyer than it is to be in the fashion industry. I would tell you that. Oh, interesting. <laughs> fashion industry is really cutthroat. Yeah. Wow, that's 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 an interesting. First of all, the story is so great. The way you tell it, I love your your personality, your big smile. It's fantastic when you talk about girlfriends LA. When you talk about you know having a twenty three year having to take over the family business, you know, and all the things that went with it. So, thank you very much for sharing this. And I can totally see how totally made sense. You know, like you had you had this passion to go to school. You ended up fulfilling that desire. And, and then, you know, you go in something which is estate planning, which is very similar in a sense, like, as you said, to running a business, you know, for somebody to, to run a business. And you did it very successfully in the corporate world, which, which is pretty awesome. So I would like to end. I'll tell you how I like to end my shows. I have a list of 30 questions, and okay. I, they're all numbered, one through 30. And I would love for you to pick a number, any number, and I will ask you that question. This is a sort of back of the card type of questions. Okay, 20. All right, 20. If you had a year off with pay, what would you do? You know, I work a lot and I am, I'm, I'm a workaholic and I work a lot. I, I, think, I think I might sleep for a long time. Um, <laughs> Beautiful. And then, um, I don't know, but maybe, maybe try to, I, I don't really have a passion outside of work because I work so much. So maybe I would right. sleep and then find my passion. Okay, beautiful. That's that's a great answer. So rest is definitely part of the year sabbatical, and then and then yeah. some some soul searching. And and you know, just to throw into that, when we sold after we sold Girlfriends LA, I really kind of had that. I had gotten a big paycheck, and I right. wasn't working. And what I what did I do? I went to law school. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm not that good. I I that's why I need to sleep because I'm not that good at relaxing. <laughs> that is beautiful. Thank you so much for joining the show. It's been such a pleasure to have you. Before I let you go, mm-hmm. any of our audience that needs to get a hold of you, 
what is the best way somebody who needs your services what is we are going to have in the show notes everybody you can find all the contact information for kim but kim for somebody that's just listening to the podcast on spotify how can they get a hold of you so i do want to throw one more thing out there uh, yeah, my absolutely. practice is is purely virtual Great. although i'm a california based attorney and all my clients are in california but mm -hmm. i recently moved out of the state okay. so everything so the easy thing is you can always find me virtually but in person meetings don't don't really happen. The easiest way to reach me is through my website, which is, um, or my email address, which is Kim at Kim Millman Law, which is K-I-M at K-I-M-M-I-L-L-M-A-N-L-A-W.com. And my phone number is 818-340-5765. Wonderful. Thank you so much for being in the show. It's been a pleasure to have you. I feel like I'm, I, I wanna, I'm gonna ask you to come back at some point. So <laughs> Happy thank to do you so. so much. Bye everybody. Thank you so much for joining the show. We will see you in the next episode.